I'm Deb Ondo, and this is What's Art Got to Do With It? Conversations about aesthetic experiences and approaches to art and life. Today we talk with Nashville-based singer-songwriters Tim Dillinger-Kirton and Ray Kirton dillinger Tim is an award-winning singer, songwriter, and producer, a poet, a speaker, and historian whose career spans more than 20 years. His work has been featured on NPR, Huffington Post, and Color Lines Magazine. He has released five albums. Ray grew up in a singing family and has recorded two independent albums. Both men grew up in families where religion was a central focus. Tim, as an evangelical. The gift of growing up in a fundamentalist home was that it made my motto, uh, I'll never be fundamentalist about anything. And Ray in the black church. I was not allowed to listen to anything with gospel music. We didn't have cable in the house growing up. We talk about their coming out experiences as gay men and artists seeking to infuse their music with a different kind of spirituality. Let's get to it. So I'm curious, when did music find you or did you find music? How how did all that happen for each of you? I think it was totally just kind of predestined, I guess, for me. Ray was surrounded by music as a child. Everybody in my family sang. I, you know, grew up listening to my mother and my sister and my brother singing in the church, singing around the house, learning how to sing harmony from my family members and my aunt as a singer-songwriter. And so all of it was just kind of like, of course, this is going to be a part of who you are. Mm. Um, It's just, what what does that mean for you? What about you? I think for you, it was a a different kind of thing. Tim had a profound experience with music when he was just four years old. This was the album that changed my life at four. Four years old. Four years old. Prodigal According to Reba by Reba Rambo. And I heard this record and I knew what I wanted to do. And so it was, and music was my language. I mean, it's my earliest memory. Memories are of music. That's incredible. You don't hear many people having that level of understanding about what was calling to them at that young of an age. It's almost like Reba was your conduit, obviously, and it was just looking for you, and there you were. It knew you were that you were out there. I love that. Religion and spirituality, they were early influencers, right? We both grew up, you know, in um, Christian homes. I was a preacher's kid. My grandfather was a pastor. My mother was the church musician and a minister herself as well. Tim grew up in an evangelical family. It was pretty rigid. We went to Jimmy Swaggart's for summer vacation. We went to PTL and that was summer vacation. And so those were the staples, you know, Christian television, Christian music. And there was something though in the music that I was drawn to, even within that world, that the music I was drawn to was more progressive and was more liberatory predominantly women, you know, uh, women artists, uh, gospel music, Andre Crouch and the Disciples, Reba, they were a a bit left of center, particularly Reba's music. I heard a different kind of spirituality, a God that I liked. I didn't like the God of my grandparents at all. So having that contrast, even within that world, really shaped how I viewed what I was hearing and experiencing. And that was, you know, it's been my, you know, exorcism. 44 years is working that out, both in my art and in my life. Like, where does, what is my true spirituality? For Ray and his family, religion had different contours. I feel like my 
upbringing was less rigid. There were, and yet rigid in different ways. Like I was not allowed to listen to anything with gospel music. Uh, we didn't have cable in the house growing up. I was probably one of the only kids uh, that I remember in elementary and you know grade school that you know still had the rabbit ears on the TV to get you know, mm-hmm. channels you could get that way. And we didn't have internet in the house until it became something that I needed for school. And looking back on it, knowing what popular music was doing in the 90s and the 2000s and, you know, hip hop becoming such a big thing, I see the standpoint of why my parents weren't wanting things like MTV in the house, certain music videos, certain images, certain notions of what being in the world, you know, how that might be impressionable for a young Black kid, you know, just trying to figure out his identity and maybe taking in those messages without any context and, you know, taking that in. But I think for me, I was also seeking and I was trying to find music that was well-crafted, just beyond the messages of the music, trying to find orchestration and production and really wanting to analyze the music in that way. And so that led me to the confines of what was happening in gospel music, people like Richard Smallwood, who was incredibly um, orchestral, but also people who were more progressive and, um, you know, we talk about crossover uh, gospel artists, uh, gospel artists that were appealing to a more mainstream or secular market. And so those were the artists that I was also looking towards, the artists that were doing contemporary gospel music, people like Tone and people like uh, Dietrich Haddon. So like wanting to expand my um, palette a little bit and find ways to relate to the music that was happening of the day, but with Jesus lyrics. <laughs> then expanding beyond that because there were confines in that. And so wanting to find artists that I knew were influence, influences on other artists. So finding people like Stevie Wonder and people like mm. Michael Jackson and doing that kind of in sly ways because I knew that was music that my parents were listening to before they had gotten saved and became more more staunchly, uh, you know, maybe dogmatic in their, in their religion. And so I felt like, well, if I could, you know, kind of ease in and see what they liked about the music. But in all of that, I mean, even with Stevie Wonder, there's so much spirituality weaved mm-hmm. into um, his lyricism. And so wanting to make music eventually, realizing this was something I was supposed to be doing, make music that was life-giving mm-hmm. and seeing you know, what I've gotten from gospel as that foundation, but also seeking that in artists even outside of the gospel realm. You know, Tim, you said, what is my spirituality? I, it's, that's such a great question, I think, for so many of us. I don't know that it ever gets answered while we're alive. I don't think we ever really answer that question, right? I mean, at least for me, that's how I think about it. The gift of growing up in a fundamentalist home was that it made my motto uh, I'll never be fundamentalist about anything. And so <laughs> it does evolve. Like our spirituality shifts and our beliefs should change as time goes on. We should look back. I mean, I was thinking it today. I was watching some old gospel videos from my from my teen years of, you know, coming to Nashville as a teenager and going to gospel explosions and, and, uh, and you know, remembering some of the things that I did not do when I was at those functions because I thought it was worldly out of fear. I was more afraid than actually believing it was worldly, but I was afraid. And so we should be able to look back on those things and say, I wish I'd done that. 
Yeah. I wish I had been, I wish I had allowed myself to experience that or know that. And, you know, and it's not in a regretful way, but it is to say like, we can reflect and wish that we had thought differently because we know differently now. Right. You know, absolutely. You know, I, and I grew up as a Jehovah's witness. That's right. And, and that's a very fundamentalist religion, very strict adherence to a particular interpretation of the, the books we call the Bible. I, I can relate to what you're saying. There there were plenty of, and I was the firstborn in our family, so there were plenty of things that I wasn't allowed to do, or even join the Girl Scouts, because it was considered worldly. So you look back on that, and I, I know I agree with you, Tim. It's not with regret. It's with curiosity and a bit of intrigue that, hmm, okay, so that's that's what it was, and here I am today, and, and how much I've learned and and grown through the years. Well, it's part of you, and you talk about this a lot, our curiosity. One of the things I think that the limitations for those of us that woke up or that are waking, continuing to wake up, like our curiosity stays very alive. So, you know, I've spent a lot of time in this incarnation going back to experience, to watch and listen to things I was not allowed to back then, Mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's yeah. been a thing for both of us. And that's totally, I mean, I remember watching when I first moved to Nashville, the first thing I did, I was 24 years old, if you can even imagine, <laughs> I rented, went to Blockbuster and rented The Last Temptation of Christ <laughs> because it was the thing you were going to get crucified for even, <laughs> you know, looking for. And I said, I must see it. I, I must see it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm here. I'm on my own now, completely, you know, completely separated from everything I knew. I'm going to watch it. And I thought, what a great imagining of this story, Mm. you know? And so, and then not knowing years later, I would find The Passion of Mary Magdalene by Elizabeth Cunningham. Also is a reimagining of that story that completely shifted me. Yes. My life. And so that's, to me, that's spirituality is being able to not need it to be a particular thing. I understand a book says a particular thing and we want to make it law, but it doesn't have to be law. As gay men, navigating strict religious upbringings meant developing a trust in themselves, that what they knew instinctively was real. For Tim, that process started at a young age. That was a process that started at four or five. I mean, that was one mm. of the things I knew about myself mm. far back. When I look back on, of course, you don't, you know, as you're a child, so you don't have words and you don't know what, how to articulate that. And then in our environment, there's no one you can really articulate that to. Mm-hmm. I had the real gift at 16 of having a sister friend who, you know, emancipated herself mm. uh, from her father and, and had a whole, you know, another life as basically in a 16 year old with an apartment living on her own. And she said to me, are you gay? And she said it out loud and it scared the poop out of me. I mean, it's it, to have someone see it, to speak it. I didn't know what to do, but she gave me space in a, in a world I did not have space to say that anywhere else. And so just being able to have that little tiny sliver yeah. of space where I could talk about it and with her and articulate it and express what I was looking for and what I wanted and if I could have it. 
I mean, it changed my life because once you, you know, it's one thing to carry a secret. Mm-hmm. You keep it inside and nobody knows it but you and you might drive yourself crazy doing that. But then once you say it, it does take on a life and it becomes real. Yes. You moved past the barrier of I can never say it. So now I've said it. Yeah. And now the reality is, can I allow myself to take the next step? And then you take that next little step and then you take. And so it's a becoming. It's, a, it's an emerging of who we really are. Yes. Right. I think for me, what was unique about it for me, but maybe not so unique for most, I guess for me, I wasn't even so bogged down about what other people would think or um, feeling like I'd be ridiculed or ostracized from people because I was very ardent in my spirituality and not wanting to disappoint my parents. I think that was a huge piece of it too. This idea that they have raised me. They shielded me from all these things that are apparently bad to, you know, keep me pure and keep me morally good. And right. here's a piece of me that I'm not figuring out how to relinquish that might stain that notion. Yes. Yeah. And I think I had a few saving graces. One was I had an older brother who's also gay. I have an older brother who's also gay and just a beautiful advocate and friend. And so he was kind of leading the way for me in his own way and unbeknownst to him because I wasn't talking about this with anybody. I also, in the same way that you had, you know, the fundamentalism and therefore I'm not going to be fundamentalist about anything. For me, it was uh, I got uh, don't question God. Mm -hmm. And so I flipped that and was questioning everything and all things. Yeah. And I also was always trying to bring worlds together. And so being a a kid that was interested in math and science, and then also had, you know, this spiritual religious piece of me and then had this artsy piece. I was always trying to pull those things together into one thing. And I remember there was a moment with, uh, I think I was, it must've been biology. And we got to that, 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 that topic and, you know, you know, that, that, oh, yeah. that human evolution. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I remember going into that in, in high school, knowing, you know, they're not going to change my mind with their evolution stuff. You know, I hear about this in, you know, in church all the time that, you know, they're going to try to push this on me and I'm, I'm going to resist. And uh, lo and behold, they, they showed a video that featured scientists who have yeah. Christians. Yeah. What? Science. Who believe in evolution. What? And I went, how do you do both? And started researching and researching and finding you, it doesn't have to always be either or. You don't have to be, you know, this thing and then that makes you not that thing. And so things like that were all coming together to show me there's a way. There's a, there is a mindset, a mentality that you can hold for yourself, find for yourself and adopt for yourself if it resonates with you. And that was my pathway out. That's a really great segue into my next question, actually, which is, do you think there's space for a newly imagined kind of spiritual music? How how do you see that happening? I have challenges seeing it. And the only way that I can see it is make it. I feel like there has to be. I don't know that it's necessarily a question of can it be? I feel like it has to be Mm. because I feel like the way music is be- has become so 
capitalist, so late stage capitalist <laughs> that, you know, I mean, we're talking about like AI and holograms doing tours, you know, when that is, yep. is, you know, seen as something that is, you know, living up with the, the artists that we love, the, the icons that we've had, you know, that have really been human, almost superhuman <laughs> examples of how to be a music maker in the world. And now we've got this just hyper consumptive thing happening. And then you've got, you know, gospel and CCM, the state that they're in now, which is, you know, we're kind of in dire straits just in terms of originality, creativity. I think it's all coming to a, a, a boiling point or a tipping point where we have got to figure out how to weave some notion of spirituality back into music. And I'm hoping that the conversations, because me wanting to connect all these things together, that the conversations that we're having around political movement, around mm. racial injustice, around environmental justice, all these things are hopefully leading us to remember how we can bring these things together. I think for me, the, the greatest spiritual music that I've encountered that does lead the way the majority of it, I would say, was women's music mm. or is women's music because, I mean, I had, again, the benefit of growing up with some really progressive contemporary Christian and gospel music. Wonderful. Changed my life. Got me to a particular point. But then it was like, well, I need something that also reflects what I've come to understand about politics, what I've come to understand about identity. And I found women's music a decade ago. And so that's become the added piece for me that when I think about creating today, I'm looking at that and going, they did it all, spirituality and feminism and identity and theory. You know, it's, it's a complex music that's so accessible and not that unrelated to contemporary Christian music. So to me, I'm like, you know, in the stew, listening to that going, okay, so let's put this together. How do we put this together? And that's, you know, where I'm at. I haven't finished anything yet, but I'm I'm marinating and I'm thinking about that. Yeah. And, you know. But I think it could be that because it was all about making sure there was space for everyone and yes. not needing people to be the cookie cutters, not needing yes. people to be holograms because, oh, this sold this number of units, so we have to pump out five more just like it. Completely different kind of thing, their own experiences, their own styles, their own right. interpretations of what feminism was for them, being a woman was for them, being a lesbian for many of them was for them. And regional. I mean, you also and have, regional. you know, mm -hmm. think about Teresa Troll bringing her Southerness and her gospelness to the table. And I think about... Linda Tillery bringing her rock and gospel and soul influences together and through a feminist lens. And it really was, everyone was at the table mm -hmm. uh, to the best of their ability. And so that's where I think we have to go now. You know, as a culture, I think we're really attached to our identity politics, which is fine. Um, and important, especially for early stages of Absolutely. coming to terms with who we are and reconciling our material world, our material circumstances right. with, but wait, it doesn't have to be this way. And wait, right. 
I need to remember what I come from, my history, my, you know. And the spiritual component is what needs to be fused with it. Yes. Yes. That's really what we're lacking. Yeah. So disconnected from our spirits. It's so true. And I and I wonder if you think that some of the music that that came out of the 60s, you know, I think of Carole King and I'm, I I know there are so many others, but really when they were making music that was had a social justice thread, isn't that spirituality at its, at its core? The ultimate. However, somebody might think about God or the universe or a higher power. I mean, isn't it all about social justice and yeah. finding our shared humanity? I think for, for many people, what, you know, what really did confuse that was there were many wonderful things about the Jesus movement in the 70s and what it brought, because a lot of that is how rock and roll mm. found its way into Christian music. But what became a problem was that everyone decided that God was not a God of social justice. They wanted God to be their boyfriend. Right. So, so we went from oh, understanding yeah. Jesus as a social justice worker to understanding Jesus as someone from a Harlequin romance. And so, you know, and it, because we aren't nuanced, that became the only Jesus then. Jesus as the boyfriend and the dominating boyfriend at that. Mm -hmm. You know, we've got to really revisit, uh, like we said at the top of the conversation, like, what is my spirituality? Yeah. Oh, I believe. I'm talking with singer-songwriters Tim Dillinger-Curitan and Ray Curitan-Dillinger. If you're enjoying this episode, please head over to iTunes and submit a review so more listeners can find us. Next, Ray and Tim talk about how the creative process works for each one of them. We entered a, a real hibernation period with specifically music. And mm. turning that back on within ourselves, these, you know, this last year, I guess, and really, you know, at the top of this year, really being able to, to hone in on it for myself, I've had to learn it all over again. But what I found isn't different about what it was, you know, maybe six or seven years ago, is that uh, it always has to start organically. For some reason, I hear something, something just kind of pops up. And I know it's something that I need to either remember or record. And usually these days, it's really remember. It's, it's really just, yeah, this is this is the the seed of something. Let me hold on to that. You hear it in your head, Ray? Is it? Yeah. And a lot of times it's really just a melody or the beginnings of a, a song start. If it's, if it's really, really got something on it, then it's got, you know, maybe uh, the beginnings of a subject matter or something like mm. that really just marinating on that. And the process is isolated. It is meditative. It is being quiet and figuring out what it's supposed to be. I mean, I'm in the middle of writing a song right now that I've been holding on to for years, just kind of a notion of, you know, is this about, it, is, it keeps coming back like something special, something special. So is it me that has something special to offer someone else? Is it someone else that has something special to offer me? And I've been like wrestling with it. What is it supposed to be? What is it? And I can't, I can't let myself be content with I even started the lyric. And it's like, yeah. And it clicked last week that it's not about this back and forth, me or you or you or me. It's you need to share the something special with you. And so now I'm needing to like completely go into a different notion. And so that's really how the process works. It's listening to what the song is supposed to be and, and moving with it. 
my process is different every time. <laughs> I never have it figured out. I've been, you know, I'm a bit of a dry right now, which really means I'm just fueling. So I take myself every time I sit down to write a record. One thing that is consistent is study. And so I take myself through wherever I'm guided uh, to read about. And so, you know, right now I'm reading uh, memoirs of fashion editors. Hmm. And I landed there for some strange reason, but there's incredible messages. Uh, Andre Leon Talley's memoir and Grace Coddington, Diana Vreeland. That's where I've been. I've just been living in people that developed a personal style and what influenced that? Like what made someone decide to work in fashion? What's their process? And it's deeply spiritual. Uh, and I didn't expect that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you show up, do we work, get surprised. And then somehow at the end of this, it will become something. I don't know what, I don't know yeah. what I'll write, but that's where I'm, you know, at the current moment, that's my process. But you know, songs come to me lyric first. Yeah. I and rarely, I'm the total opposite. Yeah. I rarely get music. Mm. Um, it's usually a word, words or a series of words, or I'll know a concept that I want to write about. But beyond that, I really don't ever know what's going to happen or how long it's going to take. I've got some songs I've been fiddling with for 10 years. Ray is finding on-ramps for his music through literature and the music of yesterday. I'm, I'm finding myself kind of leaning more so towards fiction these days because I'm really enjoying the art of storytelling in that kind of way. Not that there's not storytelling in nonfiction too, but really just kind of exploring characters and you know what that means and how that might inform my music, but also studying the rich history of music. I feel like popular music appreciation, especially, we kind of tend to only go like maybe maybe 20 years back, maybe 30 years back, depending on where we are in time. And I just feel like that lops off, especially for, you know, millennials, people in my generation, yeah. you don't, you know, you miss so much good. When I was in high school, one of the first eras of music, I like, whoa, that was a thing. Let me dig into that. Yeah was music of the Flower Power era, era, music of the late 60s, early 70s, and, and discovering artists like the Mamas and the Papas and mm -hmm. what the Beach Boys were doing then even, was a little psychedelic and fun. And the Temptations were entering that kind of phase and everybody's hair was getting longer and the whole hippie kind of out there. You see, I've got, you know, my tank and my my, my, my locks. So, you know, that's what I kind of absorbed from that whole piece of it. But, you know, I just think there's so much that we can glean from eras that we weren't necessarily a part of, or maybe we were. Right. I think society, our sort of modern world tends not to want to look back very often. And there's so much we can learn about those who came before us, but we, we always learn something about ourselves by having a glimpse of history. Tim, you have five albums out, and I'm wondering if you have a thought about how your music, and Ray, you have put music out there too, so this is a question for both of you. How do you think the world has interacted with your music? Like, how does an artist have a sense of that? And what is your sense of that? Well, my first two albums really were the ones that seemed to connect in the broadest way. They were, you know, my little baby attempts at speaking my truth, you know? And so I look at it now and I really don't 
ever want to sing those songs again, <laughs> but still get feedback, get messages to get the monthly reports and see where this music is still streaming, that people are still finding it, um, that it resonates. I mean, it still deeply resonates with the people that know it. And that's significant to me. I mean, I, I think we all, maybe all artists, really are harsh with ourselves, you know, when we look back at our work. But, you know, the reward is that people find it and people find it for where they are. Yeah, they're meant to find it in that moment in their lives. Yeah. Put it out there, it's not yours anymore. You can't control. And I used to get really upset when people misunderstood songs and go, that's not what I was saying. That's not what I meant. And then I just went, shut up. Like, <laughs> shut up and take the quarter of a penny royalty for the screen. And, you know, let it mean what it just like work has come to mean things to me. And so you just have to let it live. And it's a gift. People liked love songs. And I wrote universal love songs. I always wrote genderless love songs. That was intentional. And so the people that interact with it are uh, largely women, gay men. I mean, it's been the bulk of my audience, church people. <laughs> church people loved, I mean, it was like the worldly thing they could let themselves have were, you know, my R&B records. You know, our shows, when I did shows a lot, that's who was there. It was church people. And they knew that they were going to have a spiritual and fun time. Be a little sacrilegious and yet also be in the spirit all at the same time. Right. So I think that I've maintained that connection with the people that continue to follow me through the years. That's beautiful. And for me, I mean, my works were done so selfishly. I was not even thinking a lot about how other people would find it or even thinking like, what, what should I do to try to get other people to find it? It just was not even on my radar. The, the focus was so much about using the opportunity to be in the studio, to craft the music, to learn about me and to reflect my understanding of how the world should be or could be as I saw it then. And so with that, you know, thankfully, you know, some people have found the music and um, same thing. I mean, they really gravitate towards the love songs. I really worked very, very hard to craft the kinds of love songs that I hoped could be as devoid of dysfunction <laughs> that we often get in love songs that, you know, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't even know how to eat. I can't even, you know, whatever, you know, just the, the yeah, I've lost myself you of what love could be. And I really wanted to, <laughs> try to remove it and say, actually, it's a really healthy spiritual way to, to tackle and understand these concepts of love. And, you know, thankfully, the people that have found the music get that and they get that there is something something special in some of those songs. And so with what I'm working on now, I actually am thinking much more communally, much more about how can this music work to find people who need this kind of messaging and this kind of music today. So we shall see what the impact of it'll be and how that'll also inform what people make of what they find from the from the previous records as they discover my art. And Tim, with your with your show, your lives that you do, you talked a little bit about it. I mean, you are revealing and exposing lesser known artists. Mm-hmm. which I think is really wonderful. And it can kind of harkens back to what we were just talking about, about not being afraid to look back and just seeing 
what what we can learn not only from a music perspective an art perspective but just a human perspective what 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 were those lyrics what yes. were they singing about right so the main thing i wanted to do was point back i mean ray made a comment when we first started working together you know eight years ago, seven years ago. One of the things he said to me was that my liner notes were like history books and that they're, you know, because I always made references to the past and to artists. And and so I feel like this is just, the show is just an extension of that, of continuing to, and I had artists that modeled that for me. I mean, the main one who did that was Tina Marie. Mm. Um, She always, I mean, there were so many things in her jackets of her album uh, that she would dedicate songs to artists. She had poems, you know, that she put in that she wrote that also pointed you to artists. And she was really, I mean, just such a great teacher to me in that way. And if I had not ever heard Tina Marie, I would never would have heard Ishan Gay, who transformed mm-hmm. my life with her writing and her poetry. And so I wanted to extend that through having these conversations uh, with other creators. And sometimes they're the actual creator of the work themselves. Uh, Sometimes they just love that particular album too. I wanted to create a conversation, a specialized conversation about what these albums mean to us and why they matter. And so I think everything I do is to point people back because I'm not that original and none of us are. You know, we we can have wonderful thoughts, but we glean our thoughts from a montage of, we're montages, you know, we're collages. Great way to express it. Yeah, so we're true. Quilts. You know, we're, we're quilts. Yeah. And so to be able to say, this is the part of my quilt I got from this person. And yeah. this is what they meant to me. This is what their work meant to me. That's to me the ultimate. I love that more than making a record of my own. Mm-hmm. I really do. And there's such a, a, you know, we talked about like life moving too fast and things just kind of spiraling and spinning too far forward. And I think when with that happening, there's a lot of lessons that get missed. And so what I so appreciate is that you're oftentimes mostly highlighting records that are out of print or that have been out of print for a really long time. And you're Mm -hmm. saying like, we missed that lesson. Let's let's go back and get that one. Let's 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 that and, and, and pick that one back up. So, yeah. We talked a little bit about what you're both working on right now. You know, you're in some ways in the gestation period you, you mentioned, sort of just mm-hmm. becoming. Is there anything else you want to say about what, what it is that's coming next for each one of you? I think it's unexpected. Musically, I don't know that it's so related to what I've done in the past. And so it, of course, is connected because everything's connected. But yep. I feel like, you know, I'll be 45 next month. I've always felt more like a musical sojourner and more like a, a crash course of sense through styles and genres. And so I think I'm moving in a direction that's more dance oriented uh, than something I've done in the, anything I've done in the past. And part of that is, I think, the gospel connection to disco and um, house music. And so I see an easy way to fuse that spirit um, in the sounds with the sounds that I love. And so I think that's where I'm, that's where I'm heading. I don't know what the content is going to be yet, but I do know that musically that's where my ear is and that's what I'm looking at. Wonderful. I think for me, it's actually the reverse. Cause I did a lot of dance oriented pop music, especially on the first 
album. But uh, no, both of them. Both of them were pretty dancey. Um, and I'm wanting to uh, really use whatever I'm working on next. And yeah, I don't know if it's eventually going to be, you know, form an actual album. I feel like these days, you know, it's it's really kind of dicey what that looks like today with streaming and everything. Um, but the, the collections of songs that I'm putting together uh, are definitely more rooted in the music that I grew up with, that contemporary R&B gospel thing. Um, and I'm allowing myself, you know, we, we talked about, you know, the, the coming to terms and, you know, identity politics and, and understanding who we were and how that related to our spirituality. And, you know, in that process, there was a, a long stretch of time where I didn't want to think about gospel music. I didn't want to think about, you know, I, I think I never really stopped identifying with a notion of Christianity, but I didn't want to be connected with those people because <laughs> everything I saw was so, you know, uh, just rooted in dogmatism and, you know, something that just seemed not the, the notion of Christ that I wanted to, to walk out. And these few years of, of becoming more me, becoming into more of me, I've realized, you know what, that, that piece of me doesn't have to go away. I get to I get to still have a spirituality. I get to still want to share a gospel. And so I'm allowing myself to go there again, which feels very refreshing and really, really right, especially for the times. I often feel like those concepts have been hijacked. And so it's and, and it's binary. It's you either you're with us or you're not, you know, and there's just no room for nuance or imagining or or even bothering to look back, look at look at the history of religion to even understand what else might be possible, all the beauty that's been left behind. And it's really powerful. You didn't just walk away from, from that part of your life. You are continuing to fuse it and integrate it into, into what comes next. I went back to school, you know, four, five years ago now, six years ago, I guess, to finish my undergraduate degree. And in doing that, I really recognized, because all of my thesis work was around gospel music and contemporary Christian music. And I realized in doing that, that I had walked away with my tail between my legs. You know, mm -hmm. when I came out and had a really rough coming out experience, I did my best to still hold on to it, but that there was a piece of it I didn't feel I had ownership of. And I it's the gatekeeping. It's the gatekeeping keeps you from feeling like you can do anything within that. And I realized that it's my history too. Yeah. It's my story. Yeah. And, yes. you know, I, well, and, you know, I really want to point people just above my head by James Baldwin, mm. what he owned in this book. He really owned his connection, which he did throughout his work, but this story in particular about a gay gospel singer on the road during the civil rights movement really, really says to any of us from that world who are different, that it's your story too. There's a different way to work with it and outside of it all at the same time. And so I think the ownership piece became really clear to me while I was in school. And so in coming back to Nashville, it was, yeah, we are gatekeepers in our own right. Yeah. There's mm -hmm. certain things that are important to me that survive from that world. And I'm doing what I can um, to help that live again in the ways that I can. And that's yeah. my contribution because nobody else is interested in doing it. 
And so, you know, it's a different buy-in than waiting and asking, will you please accept me? Will you please Ooh. affirm? Will you please affirm who I am versus saying, no, this is mine. You don't get it. And I'm going to make sure it lives. This has been brilliant. This has been such a, an amazing conversation. Thank you. Both. Thank you, Deb, for making the space. Up next, the fun lightning round of quirky questions. What makes you awestruck? What makes you say, wow? I had to think about this one. And I think what really, you know, we use this phrase a lot. Uh, this uh, I, they saw me and I felt seen, but there really is something. Every collaborator that I've had with music who's ever just gotten it and wanted to work with me, you know, mm. that has been just like a, wow. Yeah. I, I we can do this. So that's, that, those are definitely my, my wow moments. Voices. Mm. The way a singer approaches a song that just goes right there. Yeah. And you get the bumps and tears and the ugly face. And, you know, those are the, those voices leave me awestruck. What is the kindest thing someone has ever done for you? I actually, Deb, you, you are sort of related to this moment. Our dear friend, Lynn, some years ago, I had a health crisis and was in the hospital. And when I got out of the hospital, Lynn organized a night with two of my friends from the city and my neighbors and in my community and got everybody in my bedroom because I could not leave the house. I remember when she did that. Yep. And filled the room with candles and food. And it's one of the greatest nights of my life. Wow. And it was one of the kind, it's probably the, you know, people have done many kind things for me. So when I say that it's, it's really hard, but that's where my mind goes. So I go to that night. That was the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. It's beautiful. A couple weeks ago, actually, my mom uh, shared my song, Honesty, from my last mm-hmm. album, Backslider. She sent it to me in a text, just letting me know that she was listening to it. And she just said, wow, beautiful. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, she has gone through her own evolution with her, you know, politics and understanding of God and how that works with spirituality with her own children. But just that that kindness, again, of... of seeing it, getting it, validating it, and um, accepting it. Yeah, beautiful. What is your favorite tree? Magnolia tree. Ooh, yes. You can go with fir, actually. Oh, okay. Out of thing for evergreens. Yes, very nice. What is your least favorite smell? Burned popcorn. Yeah, I get it. I hate it. I hate it. Go ahead. No, my okay. So I will preface this with this. This is nothing about notions of criminality, but I just do not like the smell of pot. Yeah, I just mm. can't do it. It's my second least favorite. Thank you so so much. Thank you, Deb. Thank really you. appreciate it. So grateful to share this time with you. Please tell people where they can find you. My handle on Instagram and Twitter is Tim Dillinger, and you can find my music. On Facebook, Tim Dillinger Music. Those are the best places to find me. And I'm Ray Curenton everywhere. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, raycurenton.bandcamp.com if you want to find the music and support me and not give me a, a 
what did you say, a, a, a fraction of a penny? That's yeah. right. Through streams, you can That's right. actually buy the, the record and I'll actually get a really nice chunk of the proceeds if you go through Bandcamp. That's right. Both of my albums are on Bandcamp as well. Fabulous. Everybody go to Bandcamp, please. You've been listening to What's Art Got to Do With It? I'm Deb Ondo. To follow Tim and Ray online, check out the show notes on whatsartgottodowithit.com. And if you enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes and submit a review so more listeners can find us. Thank you for being here.